This is Jamie Escudere, and welcome to another episode of Nonsense. If I had theme music, this is where it would be. So it's been a while, and it's been a while because I have been suffering from what Michelle Goldberg calls learned helplessness, which is, she describes, the depressed, withdrawn state created when terrible things keep happening and you feel powerless to stop them. Now, I know that this is not a good place to be, and I've made efforts to overcome this feeling of learned helplessness, but it's been difficult. And the reason it's been difficult is because I'm not insane. Um, like Dali, Salvador Dali once said, the difference between me and, a, and an insane person is that I'm not insane, and I'm not insane either. Um, and one of the definitions of insanity, of course, is... Uh, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And it's hard to, uh, if you're not an insane person, it's hard to not feel hopeless and helpless, given that much of what we try to do um, doesn't seem to work. For example, um, in 1991, we had the Supreme Court hearing where Anita Hill said that Clarence Thomas was a sexual harasser, and the guy was still confirmed. And incredibly, one of the people who voted for his confirmation is now uh, one of the leading uh, candidates for the presidential nomination, for the Democratic nomination for the election. And we would think, you know, we would hope that over time, attitudes towards the believability of women and men's conduct towards women would change such that a documented sexually... Um, assaultive person wouldn't make it up to the Supreme Court, but yet uh, we had Dr. Ford testify that Brett Kavanaugh is, was, is, a, is such a person, and he was confirmed. Uh, when I moved here to the Big Bend, uh, it was a very nice, pristine place, and one of the things that was great about it is that there wasn't any uh, energy stuff happening around here, and then as soon as I got here, someone suggested that they wanted to build a gas pipeline through this heretofore pristine region, and there was all sorts of uh, protests and lawsuits, etc. And I just knew in my heart none of it was going to work, and it didn't work, and now there's a pipeline in the Big Bend. Um, a year ago, I gave a speech, and I was I received a lot of criticism for it because it was a negative speech, because I made certain predictions. A year ago would have been June 2018, so before the midterm elections, I predicted that the midterm elections wouldn't really work out and change anything. Now, I admit that, and bear with me because this is actually a hopeful podcast, otherwise I wouldn't be back. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a bit negative starting out, but just hang in there, okay? I admit that I predicted that the election would be an utter loss and that uh, we would ne win neither the House nor the Senate, and we did flip the House and we got a lot of really great candidates into the House. But we didn't win the Senate, and I knew that, with, and I know that without winning the Senate, really not much can happen in terms of measurable change. I predicted that the Mueller report would come to nothing, which came true. Uh, I predicted that the children who were being separated from their parents would still be incarcerated after the election, and so they are, and in fact, apparently they don't even have the right to toothbrushes. Uh, I predicted that gerrymandering would be allowed to continue, and 
Uh, interestingly, the Supreme Court recently held that they don't get involved in political questions, which of course must be news to George W. Bush, because, but for the fact of them getting involved in political questions, uh, he wouldn't have been president. But of late, they don't get involved in political questions, and so gerrymandering is allowed to continue. And so I haven't been uh, podcasting because talking about these things hasn't made any difference and it's exhausting. Uh, and so I've done other things. And for example, I've started playing the piano. And even though I suck at playing the piano, I, I sucked a year ago and I still am terrible at it. It's something that I can observe measurable change in. It's one of the few things in my life that I feel like I'm actu is actually improving um, and so it's been a negative place, and so I haven't felt the need to tell you all about it. But as I say, I've been making efforts to sort of mentally combat it and do better. For example, there's a, a young lawyer in town who I really admire and who has been a real inspiration to me in terms of her idealism and her, despite all the evidence, her, her insistence that the judicial system and the court process can still work. And so she calls me for advice all the time about what to do, you know, trial strategy things. What motions should I file? Should I file this? How should I word it? Is this good, etc.? And I, I give her the best advice that I can, but then I always, and I try not to do this, but I, I feel like I need to be realistic. And I always try to, and I always end it with, but none of this is going to work, you know. I mean, you, you should file this motion and it should be granted, I should say that she works for the defense, so if she were a prosecutor, then it would be granted. But since you work for the defense, it won't be granted. And you need to prepare your trial strategy based upon the assumption that nothing you say to the judge will will, will result in anything positive. <laughs> it's not a good place, I understand, for me to be as a, as a mentor, but look, that's where I am, okay, based upon my experience. Um. Or at least that's where I was. I recently took a long road trip all the way from far west Texas to North Carolina. And along the way, I stopped to see some relatives in Montgomery, Alabama, and we visited, my brother-in-law and I visited the lynching memorial there, which was an amazing experience, and I think it's definitely something worth Actually, I would say it's definitely something worth traveling to and and um, thinking about. It's designed such that these copper monoliths, I guess, are hanging from the ceiling. And each one represents a county in the United States where there has been there had been a documented lynching. And then on the, on the thing that's hanging is inscribed the name of the person, if it's known, many of them are unknown, that was lynched and the date and the name of the county and the state. And of course, some counties have multiple lynchings. I was amazed to find that some, there were some days where 20 people were lynched in the same day, for example. And some of these were shockingly recent. Uh, I think the most recent one that I saw was 1945. And it was this kind of horrible thing where um, you, you, you hope not to see your county. Uh, and of course, I looked for several counties where uh, I've lived and was saddened to find that Leon County, Florida was there where I went to college, Miami-Dade County where I grew up, Florida, um, 
several Texas counties, of course. Mississippi was shockingly overrepresented. Maybe not shockingly, but, um, well, was as overrepresented as one might have imagined. And so it was interesting for me in my own sort of period of feeling of helplessness to walk through this thing and then see a quote on one of the walls saying that they ins- that the people who made this memorial insist upon remembering and combating hopelessness because hopelessness is the enemy of justice. And I looked at that and I thought, you know, if anybody has reason to be experiencing learned helplessness, it's black people. How do black people go on? I mean, let's think Eric Gardner, Sandra Bland, I mean, Emmett Till, you know, if anyone should, if there's anyone who should be giving up hope or giving up uh, feeling like there's any change ever going to, meaningful change is going to happen in the United States, it's, it's got to be the African-American community. And yet they still hope. They built this memorial. They actually have designed it so that officials from the counties represented can take one of these obelisks back, back to the county and reckon with their history. Now, I think it's telling, of course, that I, I only saw, I think, one or two that had actually been taken. Most of them are still there and probably will remain there. But still, someone along the way felt it was enough of a possibility to make that part of the memorial. And so I felt, you know, how dare I give up hope? And if they are still hoping, it must be because they actually think something can come of it. And I was reminded of something I heard that may not be true. Hopefully, I hope it's not true, but I thought, I think it's a meaning, it's an interesting symbolic uh, way of the way I'm feeling uh, that has to do with the training of circus elephants. So elephants are very intelligent creatures and they're difficult to manage because they're also very powerful. And I had, I, I learned or read somewhere long ago that the way they train circus elephants is that they they get them when they're young and they attach a tether to one of their legs and they hammer in a big stake into the ground. And the baby elephant pulls against this thing and cannot wrest it from the ground. And after a while, it gives up. It realizes that it can never, it's not strong enough. It can never re- remove itself from this binding or I guess prison you could say the thing is over time of course the elephant grows and it grows more powerful yet it never thinks to try again and all that these the people who manage the circus need to do is put this collar around its leg and even though now as an adult it could easily pull out the stake in the ground It doesn't. It doesn't even try because it's got in its mind that it can't. It's an impossible thing. And this got me wondering, maybe even though um, I'm not crazy and all the evidence suggests that we really are helpless in this situation, if the people who made the lynching memorial refuse 
to believe that. Maybe they're right. And maybe I'm just being a little bit like the elephant that's given up when actual change in circumstances is possible. And in fact, I will say that my friend who was asking me advice about a trial that she recently had that was that was coming up won the trial. She won the issue at the trial that she was going to trial for, to my shock. And so perhaps there's hope. And if there is hope, where do we find it? Let me tell you a story. We're remodeling, or we're talking about remodeling, and my wife called a woman whose name I will, who I'll call Flo, not her real name. And I like Flo. Flo is a real West Texas character. She's pure country. Uh, and, you know, she's a, you, she's a hard worker and... She's not someone that I would normally associate with, but I, I enjoy her. And she came over to our house and she was looking at the things that we want to remodel and change. And she was telling us what she would recommend in terms of materials, etc. And then she started talking about some shoddy workmanship that she had seen in some other homes in the area. And she referred to the people uh, that she was the workers in that in those buildings as wetbacks. And then she called them wetbacks. Which, of course, as I'm sure many of you know, is a, is a derogatory term used for uh, Mexicans who cross the Rio Grande and get wet in doing so. So it was a racist thing that she said. And she was unapologetic about it. She said, I know people say not to call them wetbacks, but I've been calling them wetbacks my whole life. Like that's some sort of, I guess that was her argument. And yet she shook hands with me and she was very kind to me. And, and like I said, I, I enjoyed getting along with her, even though um, for all she knew, I, I'm a wetback. I'm, you know, where I, I'm, I'm uh, descended from wetbacks. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Hispanic looking person, dark skinned and all that. And yet she didn't think twice about saying that. And I don't think she, you know, I know she didn't mean any offense. It was just part of what the part of the way she speaks and it occurred to me that this might be an opportunity of con to connect with someone i mean i didn't i didn't call her on it i didn't of course i didn't agree with her on anything i just kind of remained silent but i i did so knowing that this was the going to be the beginning of a relationship we were going to we decided we were going to hire flow and i was going to see her over a course of time and get to know her and I thought that, and I think that this might be a, an example of an opportunity to connect with someone with whom I would never meet under the normal circumstances of everyday life. And most importantly, I would never meet or interact with online. I don't know if Flo spends much time online, but I do know that if she does, she and I would not uh, meet in the same circles. And so this it occurred to me, is a real problem with America right now, where we have this huge divide between people like Flo and people like me, that we are trying to bridge, if at all, uh, through the internet and not in person. And I have really come to believe that true connection or this kind of bridging of a gap is not possible 
with the internet. I've come to believe that the internet really is not a good space, that it's a space that separates us. It's become a corporate space, not a public space. I, I, I went, for example, I, I wanted to look for the hours for my local bookstore online, and I went to their website, and they just have a static page that directs me to their Facebook page. Uh, the same thing with, I. there's this cat breeder that I follow because I'm, I'm big into, as you know, cats. But And her website isn't updated. If I want to see updated pictures of whatever is happening with her cattery, I have to go to Facebook, which I don't even um, have. I don't even have a Facebook account anymore because I'm so annoyed with the, you know, the privacy violations of Facebook and Google. And the internet has just become, really just become three companies that own everything and are trying to monetize my attention and time all the time. And I just don't want to participate in that. And the reason the internet doesn't work to bring us together is because of what Jenny o- O'Dell describes in a in a medium post she wrote about the way the internet has changed from when it was first envisioned. And it she explains how it has the ability to abstract and anonymize people. And so if I were talking to Flo on the internet, she wouldn't see me as a human being. I would just be words on a screen. And that would allow her not to really consider me as a human being. Whereas if I have an actual face-to-face meeting with her, we can become friends, even though we don't agree, I'm sure, on very much. But we agree on some things. We agree that it was a beautiful day, for example. And that agreement on just that little thing can become the seed that brings us closer together. And so I have increasingly come to believe that salvation for the United States lies in interacting with actual people who are actually around you and getting to know them and talking to them. In other words, in building actual human connection and relationships. And so I'm back. I don't know when I'll be back again, but I'm back today because I am starting to feel a little bit of hope. I feel like I was nailed into the ground, and now I'm starting to pull on that nail and feel it moving just a little bit. I'm back because I think many of us are suffering from learned helplessness. And my message is, if you get away from Twitter and Facebook and delete all that stuff, and go back to actual real communication, maybe just email or a phone call, or talking to the person who's taking your change at the supermarket, you might begin to feel those stirrings of hope again as well. Thanks for listening.